From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. I hope that you had lovely holidays and are looking forward to this new year. I've seen a lot of lists on social media about what's in and what's out for 2023. For me, I'd say worry is out, contentment is in, dieting, well, in my book, that's been out for at least two decades. And yet every year without fail, my inbox fills up with publicists trying to sell me on the latest health fad. Since I started as the host of Good Food, we've been very careful not to shed light on frivolous food trends or health claims. But over the holidays, I read Mary Beth Albright's book, Eat and Flourish, and I was struck by how far research has come to allow us to cover the subject of how food is linked to mood. Go on any social media platform and you'll see countless stories of people who are struggling with their mental health. The response by the medical field for decades has been, take a pill. But there's a new field of nutritional psychology that proposes another or maybe an additional way. Hi, Mary Beth. Hi, Evan. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Well, welcome to Good Food. Um, You're a writer, editor, and executive producer at The Washington Post. What was the turning point for you to do this super deep dive research in this area of nutritional psychology? So Evan, about 15 years ago, I was working at the United States Surgeon General's office and um, I had a, I had a, a report past my desk that showed that um, omega-3 fatty acids would uh, decrease the incidence of aggression in men. And that was the first time that I had ever seen any sort of peer-reviewed, controlled studied that showed that food and mood were related. And then over the next 15 years, everything just blossomed. This field of nutritional psychiatry there was so much research being being put out in the past 15 years about how food and mood are entwined. Yeah, I found that really fascinating how you talk about how emotional eating isn't a personal failure. It's just a part of our humanity. Very much so. And the, the, the biology really shows that when we eat anything our bodies produce dopamine. And that can be a carrot stick, that can be a piece of cake, that can be a tuna steak, anything. And that dopamine is an opportunity for us to associate certain foods with good pleasure. And the the most exciting thing to me as someone who um, grew up in diet culture, (laughs) solidly in diet culture, was that all of these effects happen independent of weight, that it's not the kind of thing that it's like, okay, eat healthy and then you'll lose weight and you'll feel better about yourself, that kind of thing. It, it's, 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 a, it's a completely biological phenomenon. Just to give us some examples, could you um, share with us some of the peer-reviewed measurable results um, that you've seen about the food emotional well-being connection? Sure. Well, one of the most interesting ones is about the gut microbiome. Now, the gut microbiome is um, the collection of trillions of bacteria and fungi and viruses that live in our digestive tract. So that goes from the mouth all the way to the other end, all the way down to the other end. And that gut microbiome and the, and the individual collection of bacteria that we have in our own bodies influences a lot of our social and emotional well-being, how well we sleep, 
social anxiety, how we metabolize medications, neuroplasticity, all of these things are influenced by this gut microbiome. And everyone's is different. It's like a fingerprint that we all have different ones. So there's some research going on globally about how early life trauma and stress can affect um, animals' gut microbiomes. And they find that mice who are raised with that kind of um, early life trauma, so they, they're put in a maze that has no end, or they get removed from their mothers, or that kind of thing, they actually have a different gut microbiome composition than the mouse next to them who didn't have that early life trauma. And we also see that certain bacteria, when animals are given stress, stress tests, have the same level of decreasing anxiety as the antidepressant Lexapro. Now, this is not to say throw away your Lexapro and don't talk to therapists anymore. I mean, I, I benefit from medication and talk therapy every single day. But it's to say that food is a tool in our toolbox, in our mental health toolbox. And right now, we need all the tools we can get. It is complementary to the many other things that you can do for your mental health. And we really need to get to know this connection because right now we are in a mental health crisis globally. And the current Surgeon General has shown that we are in a loneliness epidemic and loneliness can have the same reduction in lifespan as 10 cigarettes a day. Yeah, I mean, about that loneliness factor, one of your key suggestions to eating for a better mood is to eat with another person once a day. And I really thought about how for many of us, that would actually be the hardest suggestion to pull off. Absolutely. And I live alone part of the time. Um, and so the it, it is work eating with other people. And it's funny, one time I wrote an article about the importance of eating with other people. And the replies I got from a lot of readers were, you know, I have no one to eat with. But there is a lot of evidence that people who eat with other people enjoy better health outcomes, regardless of what they're eating at the time. And, and that people, when you eat with other people, you tend to eat more food, but your health outcomes are better. And in America, we often associate eating more food as like bad for your health, right? So it's this kind of compelling thing that, that we need to pay attention to. And for me, I enjoy being alone. I enjoy my own company, but I have as part of my own work gone out and tried to have at least one extra meal with other people per week, sometimes more. I mean, and it can be as easy as not eating your, at your desk at work or um, sitting down at a communal table at a restaurant. You know, a lot of restaurants and fashion casual places now have communal tables and there's a lot of benefit to that. Can you talk a little bit, bit about the link between our immune system, inflammatory foods, and depression? How can eating and cooking calm the nervous system instead of ratchet it up and make it more inflamed? Mm. Well, one thing that's important to remember is that flavor is created in the brain, that we often think of flavor as something that happens on our tongue. And if you know a little bit more about food, you think of it of something that happens in your nose, that flavor is created by scent. But really, we see that flavor is informed 
by everything around us. People who drink a glass of whiskey, if they drink that glass of whiskey with birds chirping in the background, they will report that it tastes grassier. If they uh, drink that whiskey with the sound of a crackling fire in the background, they will report it as tasting smokier. Same exact meal, if you eat it with disposable cutlery, plastic, flimsy cutlery, you're going to rate that meal as less delicious as if you eat it with really heavy cutlery. And these, I mean, you know, Evan, these these are tricks and tricks, you know, things that happen in the brain that chefs have used for a long time. You know, you know that the music matters. You know that what you're holding in your hand matters as you eat. And so when you cook, that increases your food pleasure, but it also can be meditative. And I don't want to be the person who says, oh, cooking is always so relaxing. Like sometimes it's not. And I get it, especially when you need to put dinner on the table for hungry people who you're responsible for feeding for whatever reason. But it can also be a meditative act. I get into a little bit about breaditation, which is the meditative act of making bread. And if you're not a person who has ever made bread in your life. There are, there are ways to do it that it's not a lot of kneading, but it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a relaxing sort of thing. And then you put the bread in the oven and you have the smell of the bread, which of course increases all of your food pleasure, that anticipation. It makes your house smell good. We always hear about people cooking something when they're trying to sell their house when they have an open house. Why don't we use those tricks and those tools on ourselves to include our own, increase our own emotional well-being? Now, the inflammation question is a really important one. Inflammation is our body's immune system at work. You cut your finger and it gets swollen and it gets warm and it gets a little bit red. That's your immune system at work. That's inflammation. What we're learning now is that ultra-processed foods, and by that I mean the kinds of culprits you're thinking of, like chips and um, industrially processed breads with industrial oils and that kind of thing. Ultra-processed food is seen as our body as a threat. That when we eat ultra-processed foods, those ingredients that our bodies don't recognize, it, it makes our bodies become inflamed. This is different from food allergies, right? Because food allergies cause inflammation too. That is human-specific. That is person-specific. But ultra-processed foods seem to affect everybody in this way, causing inflammation. Now, when you have inflammation in your body, it releases inflammatory compounds into your bloodstream. And that happens anywhere in your body, whether it's food-related or not. Those inflammatory compounds can make their way into your brain. We used to think that the brain was completely protected by something called the blood-brain barrier, that it was impenetrable, that nothing that was circulating in the blood could get through to the brain and hurt it. Now we know, and this is just in the past few decades, now we know that that barrier is actually a whole bunch of tightly, tightly connected cells. So it's not impenetrable, it's semi-permeable. And the little tiny inflammatory compounds in your blood can make their way to your brain and wreak havoc with your emotional well-being. And that can happen just by having an ultra-high processed food diet. Even just staying away from that ultra-processed food, even removing a little bit of it from your life will have an effect on your emotional well-being because you won't have those inflammatory, as many of those inflammatory compounds in your bloodstream. As a society, we tend to want the easy fix. 
I mean, to even say that is just, well, of course we do. It's just who Americans are. We shy away from complexity and nuance. So how do we keep this new knowledge, and there's so much of it in your book, from leading to another way to self-blame? Like, Mm -hmm. just eat better and you'll feel better. Now we're even more responsible for our own depression. Yeah, and that was my biggest concern with writing the book, was to make sure that at at no point did anyone ever say, well, you're depressed, you just need to eat better and you'll get better. You know, this is a tool in our mental health toolbox. And we all know, or I know from personal experience, that when you're having a depressive episode, it's hard to get out of bed, let alone eat a certain way or like make yourself a salad or whatever. And that's why there's so much in here about just increasing food pleasure. That if you're just at a point where you're like, I I, I can eat one thing, how do I increase the pleasure of doing that? There are tips in the book for that. Now, we are a society that wants a quick fix. And I'll be honest with you, if I could eat an entire cake tonight and then take a pill and make it be like it never happened, like that's the ideal situation. There's nothing happening like that. And that's every researcher I spoke with to an absolute person said that there is nothing in any of our lifetimes, including in my son's lifetime, that will help with emotional well-being the way that food will. There's no pill, there's no substitute to eating a diverse plant-based diet. There's a lot of research about the Mediterranean diet, the Okinawan diet, the Norwegian diet, whole grains, leafy greens, legumes, fatty fish, and importantly, eating together. It's not just about what you eat, it's about how you eat. And I can't tell you how many interviews I've done that people said, okay, what are your top five foods to eat for better mental health? And I don't answer the question because it's about a pattern. It's about a dietary pattern that is not a quick fix. It's a lifelong commitment. It doesn't mean you never eat sugar again. It doesn't mean you're going to feel this way in five days. It is an evidence-based way of having long-term emotional well-being work into what you eat and what you eat work into your long-term emotional well-being. This has been just such an amazing conversation. And the book is just I mean, it is just so packed with information that uh, I know it's something that I'm going to turn to again and again. So thank you so much, Mary Beth. Evan, this is, I, I have been following your work for decades and you're fantastic and I'm thrilled to talk to you. Thank you. That was Mary Beth Albright, writer, editor, and executive producer at The Washington Post. She was a project director and subject matter expert for the U.S. Surgeon General. Her fascinating book is Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. Coming up, what's in for 2023? Building community resilience. What's out for 2023? The super rich, like the 0.0001% buying bunker homes for the apocalypse. Or so let's hope. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. 
Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. Welcome back to Good Food. I have two 55-gallon drums of water in my garage. I also bought enough dry beans at the beginning of the pandemic that I still haven't eaten them all. Does that make me a doomsday prepper? Hardly, especially when contrasted with how the ultra-rich among us are preparing for dystopia. Are they building $150,000 kitchens underground? Who would cook? I mean, many of them don't even know how. Douglas Rushkoff writes about the impact of digital technology on our lives. These last couple of years, he's had a front row seat to, as he describes them, a group of super rich preppers preparing to save themselves from the apocalypse. And as he points out, they're doing it at everyone else's expense. Hi, Douglas. Hey, how you doing? Well, I have to say your book was a harrowing read, and it's going to stick with me for a very long time. Oh, well, I hope you got some of the comedy, too. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So tell us a bit about your beat. Who do you usually work for, and what are their concerns? Well, I mainly write books about technology and the future and how society changes, and I'm always really concerned with whether people are getting to use technology or technology is using people. And um, I guess because of all my writing, I've, I've ended up being correct about a few things in the future, and like you know, predicting the internet or naming viral media or talking about this crash or that. So sometimes the tech investors and technologists will call me out to do a talk about the digital future to sort of spur new thinking or open their horizons or help them understand one trend or human need or another. But... In this particular case, I, you know, I was called out to do this talk that was supposed to be about the digital future, but instead of bringing me out on stage, they brought these five super wealthy guys into my green room to then start peppering me with questions about their bunkers. Like, should they stay in Alaska or New Zealand? How do they keep control of their security force? You know, which, you know, vertical farming technique is going to work as if I'm some kind of an expert in uh, uh, survivalism. So fascinating. So you meet with these guys, it's uh, four men and one woman, billionaires, and on your way on the plane back from that experience, you are so affected by how the conversation went that you immediately write something and post it. And a lot of things unfold from there. Could you start by describing us what you call the mindset? Yeah, well, the mindset is I guess what I took away from these guys is the belief that with enough money and technology that they can somehow insulate themselves from the reality they're creating using money and technology. It's as if they want to be able to build a car that could drive fast enough to escape from its own exhaust because they're aware that what they're doing, that their practices are creating so much waste and slavery and economic inequality that eventually, you know, it's 
going to break things down. They, they believe even more than we do that society is coming apart, that civilization is ending. So they're investing, and they gave me the figure of 20%. They're investing 20% of their assets in what they call Plan B, <laughs> which is if everything breaks down, what can they do? Can they upload their consciousness to a chip? Can they get to a remote island? Can they protect themselves with a dome? Can they get off the planet altogether? And so they're all looking at what can they do to move ahead, to stay ahead of the devastation in their wake. So it's so interesting because we've talked to preppers before in this show, and when I think about preppers in the traditional sense, they are people who know a lot about nature. They know how to do things like hunt and can. They're actually prepared. That is not these guys. No, these guys do not want to learn how to forage the urban landscape after the apocalypse. (laughs) They want to have servants and people that do everything for them. They think that because they've played video games like SimCity or Civilization, that they can take that approach to building a whole new world. Just give me some investment money and I'll go and clear cut a forest and build a beautiful eco village, you know, with its own special hydroponic gardens and special agricultural techniques. And they think that their idea, like one of them wants to build a farm that's using all of these plastic tubes that you you keep the topsoil that's actually good topsoil in these large plastic tubes and you grow the food out of that so you don't have to water the whole ground you can just water your little tubes and 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 they you know computer stacks and and measuring things and and sensors to see how moist and how quickly and how much sun and all that and then whenever i show anything like this to a real farmer they're like well what about when the Topsoil in that tube gets contaminated. What about if it gets mold? You're going to have to change it out. You know, that they've got these very high tech but extremely brittle and naive approaches to farming because they've been farmers for all of 15 minutes and then think they can come and solve the agriculture problem the same way they solved, you know, the revision of some piece of software. I want you to tell us about J.C. Cole and Safe Haven Farms. Um, One of the quotes um, that you have from him really hit me. He says, honestly, I'm less concerned about gangs with guns, talking about encroaching on these isolated, you know, sequestered areas. I'm, I'm less concerned about gangs with guns than the woman at the end of the driveway holding a baby and asking for food. So what is he um, searching to create with Safe Haven Farms? Yeah, he's an interesting guy. You know, he wrote to me right after I posted my first article about these billionaire preppers saying, I've got the answer for these guys. You've got to introduce me. He's building these farms that are going to be an hour or two away from major cities. And the idea is that the rich person pays 5 or $10 million now and then has a place to run when the event happens, you know, and everything falls apart. And the brilliance of his plan is that it's you don't just invest in the sustainable farm that you're going to live in, but you're paying to invest in a company that's going to teach other people how to do this kind of farming. And that's the reason why no one wants to invest. The tech bro billionaires, they're like, wait a minute, what? what? Some of our money is going to be used to educate other people? Why would I waste my money on other people? It's all going to be on me, me, me. And part of the safety is to 
is to change the way the supply chain works. One of the things he referenced were chicken farmers who don't actually hatch chickens. They buy chickens, so they don't even know how to have a rooster, um, hens who lay eggs, etc., yeah, yeah, I know. He, I remember we walked by his chicken coop and he goes, this is a real chicken coop. I've got roosters. Right? <laughs> and he's like, they don't know how to make chickens. They buy chickens and make the eggs. Or he said, you know, most farms, because they don't even have seeds. Most farms, they buy little sprouts from some central processing plant. And then they put those in the ground. And he's like, no, I've got seeds. You, you've got to be able to sustain yourself without being connected to this giant and brittle, you know, circuitous supply chain. And are people knocking down his door to throw um, a mere five to ten million at him to participate? No, they're not, oddly enough. Um, they're, they're, people are buying, you know, their own bunkers. They're buying, you know, shipping containers and having construction companies bury them under the ground with, you know, preposterous ideas with, you know, underground swimming pools and movie theaters. It's like a child's Twilight Zone fantasy for how to, you know, live through the apocalypse. I I have to say that it doesn't seem like this approach is actually viable for (laughs) feeding oneself. It depends on so much delusionary thought. And, And one more thing. I searched your book for the word kitchen, and it isn't there, which to me speaks volumes about who these people are. Oh, yeah. I don't think they go to the kitchen. Or are concerned about having one to yeah. prepare food. They think the food <laughs> is going to arrive underground like it does now with a click. Oh, yeah. Or at best, uh, you know, you pour water on a meal ready to eat. You know, one of those military things. But I think that they believe that they will have a chef on staff along with a dentist and a private doctor and a concierge, you know, and someone to select their DVD for the evening. And it is a delusion. But these are the strategies they're using right now. This is their vision of the world. This is the way Uber works and DoorDash works and Grubhub and Facebook and all of their apps have the same underlying premise that none of the externalities matter. They they don't contemplate the origins of things or the cycles of life. Thank you so much, Douglas. Oh, thank you. That was Douglas Rushkoff, author of Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. When we think about the intersection of food and tech, often we think of gadgets. But my conversation with Doug had me thinking about how the tech industry manipulates food itself. Consider fake meat. One of the most compelling conversations I've ever had on the topic was with writer-historian Benjamin Wergaft, whose 2019 book, Meat Planet, investigated social, political, and philosophical issues around the quest to grow cultured or cell-based meat. I asked him to come back today to talk about this fascinating nexus of food and tech. Hi, Ben. Hi, Evan. It's It's such a treat to be back with you. First of all, just give us a reminder of the difference between cultured meat and plant-based meat. Of course. So cultured meat, which was the subject of my research in the book that I wrote, is um, based on animal cells. Uh, 
Researchers take a small biopsy of cells, muscle cells, fat cells, from an animal and turn that biopsy of cells uh, using uh, bioreactors, um, feeding them growth media into a mass of cells that they can harvest and form into something like meat. Plant-based meat, on the other hand, is entirely made of plant cells. And right before the pandemic was upon us, um, Kenji Lopez-Alt wrote a short explainer for the New York Times, and he made the distinction very clear by talking about the properties of animal cells versus the properties of, of plant cells. Essentially, plant cells are structurally different. They are stiffer. Um, they produce crunchy experiences in the mouth. And animal cells, especially muscle, are, are springy and they're chewy. And they often come with these fat cells, which have, of course, their own taste and other sensory qualities. So another way to look at it is that if you want to copy meat, you can copy meat using a couple of different approaches. And one of them is to try to find a way to make meat, animal cell-based meat, without involving animals that you have to kill. <laughs> and that is uh, the approach of cultured meat, starting with animal cells. The other approach you might call the sensory approach, which is what the current crop of plant-based meat companies try to do. And they, they try to copy the sensory experience of consuming meat. Pat Brown of Impossible Foods has been known to say that people don't crave meat, they crave the experience of meat, which is a fine distinction that then lets people say, we're going to reproduce that experience without having to reproduce meat exactly. You you mentioned Pat Brown. Tell us a bit more about him and why he interests you so. Well, Pat Brown's a fascinating figure, um, not only as a scientist, as a co-founder, I believe, of the Public Library of Science. He's um, also ideologically very much... Um, a kind of techno-progressive and somebody who believes that technology has the capacity to help us to resolve major global challenges, um, ranging from climate to the sustainability of food production. And um, I uh, don't mean to, to pick on Pat Brown for this exactly, but he has been um, really great at making certain kinds of public statements, like we can have a world of nothing but upside, um, in one talk that I attended in 2018 when he was really working the crowd to get people excited about impossible foods. And he seems to me indicative of a line of thought in the world of food and tech that I would call cornucopian. And you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past. I take the term from the food historian Warren Belasco, who wrote this book called um, Meals to Come, A History of the Future of Food, which I would recommend to anybody who wants to delve into the subject. And for Belasco and for me, cornucopians are people who really do believe that a combination of technique and technology can keep food production ahead of population and give us a world of plenty, despite um, 
our appetites, and despite some of the deleterious effects of our industry on climate. And a world of nothing but upside is, of course, too good to be true. But there it is. It's something that I think is a dream of people who think that a combination of technological change and the market can help us to resolve issues that, in my own view, have to do with the scale of our civilization and the style of our consumption. And the issue there, I think we have to tell the story in the key of the Western diet and its globalization. What drew you to covering this particular intersection of food and tech? What what does it reveal about us? When I started out on this beat in 2013, I was really interested in how people predict the future in science and technology and food, and in particular, why they would think that problems in our food system are best solved through technology. And I'm still very interested in that question. When I wrote Meat Planet, it seemed like an ideal chance to ask questions that are about morality, about our ethical comportment on the planet, how we relate to non-human animals. And the story of, of cultured meat you know, tells the story in, in fascinating ways because in order to create the product, people have to take cells, take, you know, this basic unit of life, and induce in them properties, to get properties, qualities out of them that they do not display in the animal. And this raises questions that to me, as a historian of ideas, are quite fascinating. What do we think life is? What do we think nature is? When we invoke the idea of nature, when we talk about food, what do we mean? And there are certain parallels in the plant-based story, although they play out rather differently. Our last interview remains so clear in my head because we recorded it right before the pandemic shut everything down. It was late February 2020. And obviously, since then, a lot has changed in the way we shop and and our spending habits. What has happened to cell-based meat in the past two and a half years? So I would like to say that there are now cell-based products that we could walk into Safeway and buy. <laughs> and this is very much not, not the case. In fact, the major development in the world of cultured meat over the last two and a half years, my book came out right at the end of 2019. And then watching from afar, as we sort of all have been, what I've seen is that the biggest development in the world of cultured meat since my, my book came out, has been actually a kind of feasibility study <laughs> rather than a breakthrough in the lab, uh, a breakthrough in a company bringing a product to market, or a breakthrough in the regulatory environment surrounding um, lab-grown meat or cultured meat. In 2019, as I was um, getting ready to sort of talk about cultured meat uh, in the media, I started speaking with a chemist named Dave Humbird, who was hired by an organization called Open Philanthropy to perform a feasibility study 
of laboratory-grown meat. And the Humbird analysis, it's called a techno-economic analysis, or TEA. And what um, Dave Humbird's analysis essentially shows is that producing cultured meat at scale could be very difficult, prohibitively expensive. It's not about the technical problems that I was looking at when I did field work for my book, and the technical problems are formidable. They had to do with finding a vegan growth media to feed the cells so that you don't have to use this ingredient called fetal bovine serum, which is exactly as appetizing as it sounds, and of course makes anything that you grow with it non-vegan, non-vegetarian. Or the problem of bioreactor design, which becomes really important if you want to make more dimensionally complicated meat forms like steak. If you want to grow two-dimensional uh, sheets of cells and then turn them into a slurry and shape that into a burger or a sausage, that's not as hard. But the more, more texturally sophisticated meat forms, really complicated. But Dave's report went deep into problems of the sterility of bioreactors, deep into the problems of the possible benefits of economy of scale as regards raw ingredients, and even the effect of growing large volumes of cells in bioreactors in terms of the metabolism of those cells, the physical properties, the things like shear forces on cells in the bioreactors. And what Dave concluded was that it's not impossible to produce cells for use in a cultured meat product at scale, but the economics of doing so never look that good. And they certainly never look competitive with conventional meat. Last month, we learned that an Israeli startup Believer Meats has started construction on a facility in North Carolina that they say can produce cultured meat on an insanely large scale. Um, they're saying 22 million pounds of meat each year in this one facility. Should we believe them? <laughs> well, we can certainly believe that they're building a plant. <laughs> but um, there's this question that hangs over this, which is, is this some kind of game changer? And does this change this larger narrative about where cultured meat is heading? And I have to, to answer no, um, because the, the sort of the game has always been to replace conventional animal agriculture of the kind that produces McDonald's-esque cheap meat and a company breaking ground on a plant doesn't really address the question of whether or not cultured meat can do that. So interesting. I just look forward to occasionally checking in with you for years to come. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to talk, Evan. That was writer-historian Benjamin Wergaft, author of the 2019 book Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food. In a minute, what if instead of trying to make a profit, we looked at the future of food through the lens of creativity and art? My next guests did just that, and the result is a fascinating collection of, quote, recipes for humanity's survival. 
Stay with us. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Consider this. The future of the planet is in our hands. It's that simple. As the world continues to change in the age of the Anthropocene, the age of man, so will our chances of survival. The Anthropocene cookbook imagines the cuisine of the future, and instead of falling fatalistically headfirst into doomsday, curators Zana Serpina and Stahl Stensley take an inventive and proactive approach to considering how future generations will eat and thrive. Welcome to the show, the two of you. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Yes, thank you very much for inviting us. We're very excited to talk to you. It's such a fascinating book. Perhaps we can begin if, with each of you explaining your work and how you came to collaborate on this project. Yeah, this work started uh, about six and uh, seven years ago when we, uh, you know, well, we realized and found ourselves in the midst of the Anthropocene debate, you know, what are they going to call the, the, uh, the age of catastrophes? And, uh, you know, it's a human-made and therefore anthropocenic um, um, period of time we live in. And uh, uh, coming from the, um, the art and technology background, this was a major discussion. Stahl, tell us what you were doing in art and technology. Give us a bit more depth about your background. Well, the, or the art and or the field of art and technology, you know, is where, you know, Art comes together with science and uh, technology, technology, and also you know uh, lots of uh, you know interesting conceptual thinking uh, about how to shape and build futures. When I started out there back in the uh, early nineties with uh, doing virtual reality technologies and and uh, future technologies, mixing that together with the uh, somatic uh, uh, possibilities. And and Zana, what is your background? Um, yes, I'm, uh, my background is also in art and technology, but I've been working for uh, several years as a curator and uh, independent researcher, uh, very much interested in the topic of the Anthropocene. And, uh, well, yeah, it's a very, it is very interesting times we live in, and um, art has a lot to contribute to our thinking now and uh, in the future for it. So uh, what book is trying to teach us through creative thinking and uh, this out-of-the-box out approach that we have to think differently and we also can't be prepared for futures based on step-by-step uh, -step guidelines. We, we don't know what is, what is to come, uh, but it is that thinking about the unexpected, the black swan events and extreme scenarios that we have to learn how to, uh, how to deal with. Give me an example of one of the projects that um, that you've um, described in the book. One kind of intriguing project uh, is the Gilpin family whiskey project, where James Gilpin uh, utilized the urine of his um, his uh, family and family members uh, who had. Um, Lots of sugars in the urine, uh, and it would extract the sugars from the urine and and uh, um, turn that batch into alcohol and, uh, and and further down the line into whiskey. So he made out of his uh, family members' uh, waste kind of exclusive drinking items, which sound some sound uh, maybe abstruse and and uh, disgusting to to quite a few. Yet it's an interesting take on how to think resources, uh, resources that, that also comes from our, our own bodies. 
Um, you also talk about how imposters might enter into the marketplace um, and the idea of 3D printed foods. Yes, we do mention uh, 3D printing in our book uh, in a couple of, uh, couple of um, chapters, uh, specifically in the fake food chapter where we investigate what if in the future fake foods or imposter foods might be actually more sustainable, better for the environment and uh, even more tastier uh, than the real foods. And uh, 3D printing becomes a interesting technology to, to achieve that because suddenly you can take all kinds of uh, raw ingredients and materials and turn them into whatever shape, form uh, you would like to have. Like, for example, in the book we mention that uh, suddenly insect-based uh, uh, um, materials, for example, from insect powder, you can actually make pasta and suddenly this ingredient turns into something uh, quite familiar in, in that case. How, how will um, pollution, radiation and plastic be deemed useful in creating our diets. In the in the Anthropocene cookbook, we we sort of explore this uh, quite radical take of what are the new tastes of the Anthropocene, and what if these new raw materials, new raw ingredients like plastic or pollution uh, and radiation, what if what if they do become a sort of intended part of our diet? Uh, we have this uh, quote in the book when we we say that uh, what if the um, plastic picking. Uh, in the Anthropocene becomes sort of this mushroom and, and the berry picking in the future. And plastic is becoming part of our food system. Um, and although right now it is uh, becoming uh, part of it unintended and um, unwillingly, uh, recent research shows that there are several uh, organisms that are learning to digest and feed on plastic like uh, mealworms and several bacteria. So if suddenly plastic becomes a feed for, uh, let's say, insects and other bacteria, we can further turn plastic into food digestible and edible for humans. Uh, so we think that all these possibilities is something to, uh, to explore. Yeah, I mean, I would say the two of you have certainly given us a lot of food for thought with this book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. It was a great pleasure. Thanks a lot. It was uh, really uh, great to talk to you. That's Zana Serpina and Stahl Stensley. Together they considered how art, food, and creative thinking can prepare us for future catastrophes in the Anthropocene Cookbook. Coming up, Haitian Independence Day is celebrated on January 1st, and all month long the country celebrates with their iconic dish, soup jumu. Hear all about it next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. For Haitians, there is one dish above all others that represents liberation— Soup Jumu. It's the official dish of Haiti's Independence Day, which is celebrated on January 1st. The soup, however, is enjoyed all month long. 
Soup jumu is so important to Haitian cuisine that in 2021, it was added to UNESCO's list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity, Haiti's first inclusion on the list. It also made headlines a few years ago when a well-known food outlet published a version of the dish that many Haitians felt was well, inauthentic, even insulting. Here to tell us more about what soup jumu is and is not is Sybil St. Odd Tate, a Haitian-American chef who's based in Philadelphia. Hi, Sybil. Hi. Um, let's start with a little history. What does Haitian Independence Day celebrate? What's the backstory? Right, so uh, Haiti was enslaved um, by the French, and legend has it that um, on uh, in August of 1791, the enslaved Africans on the island, along with some of the Maroon Africans hiding um, in the mountains, decided to come together to kind of concoct a plan to overthrow the French. So what resulted after over 10 years of fighting and battles um, was Haiti defeating the French on November 18th. 1804. And so uh, as a result, uh, we celebrate our Independence Day on January 1st. It's always been an important date, an important um, aspect of Haitian history and culture that was emphasized to me as a child growing up um, to Haitian immigrants. But of course, you know, as I got older and I met more people throughout the diaspora, it's, it's, a sim- it's symbolism for the entire Black diaspora as the one moment in history when the slaves successfully overthrew their masters. And why did this soup, soup jumu, come to celebrate freedom for Haitians? So um, during enslavement, the French decided that slaves were not allowed to uh, consume soup because it was deemed too civilized. The slaves were able to make the soup, they were able to prepare the soup, but they weren't allowed to participate in the consumption of the soup. Um, So as a result of our independence, um, our leader, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, um, the first emperor of Haiti, him and his wife kind of made a decree that from this day forth, we are going to consume soup, all the soup, <laughs> for the end of time, um, as sort of a, a defiant moment in saying that um, we were successful in kind of acknowledging freedom for ourselves, acknowledging freedom for our people in our country. And that's been the case. I mean, this is centuries and generations of of Haitians, of people of Haitian descent participating in this very rich cultural tradition of consuming this soup on January 1st. Um, and it was one of those things. I mean, I don't, I didn't know much growing up about Haitian culture because I was the only one born in the United States. But what I did know, what I did kind of understand even from an early age was that on January 1st, I was eating that soup and I was eating that soup for a week straight <laughs> just because we would make so much of it. Is it is it just relegated to January or is it eaten during the rest of the year? So t- traditionally or typically, um, especially in, in Haiti on the island, um, soup jumu is enjoyed on Sunday for breakfast. Um, but um, there's something about that January 1st soup that is just magical beyond beyond recognition. Um, and and it, it's really something to know that you're not only eating this soup by yourself or within the people within your household or your family, like there's millions of people around the world that are also participating in this practice. It's, it's very spiritual. It's very magical in that sense. So what is in this soup, Jumu? What ingredients does it absolutely need to have to mm-hmm. be considered to, to correct and traditional? 
The original recipe um, that was uh, created by um, Marie Claire Dessalines' wife um, did not it did not include meats. It did not include pasta. These are some of the things that we've seen now um, have kind of turned into staples for the soup. But the I mean, everyone is different. Every every household operates different, and depending on where you're from in Haiti, you might use certain ingredients that other people don't use. But first and foremost, that this squash. A nice pumpkin or very vibrant orange squash has to be the base of this soup and it has to be pureed so that it turns into the velvety broth that that holds the soup together. Another element that is super important is parsley or cilantro, onions, scallions, scotch bonnet, pepper, cloves. These are all ingredients that are, are very indigenous to Haiti and very prominent throughout Haitian cuisine and throughout the Caribbean, actually. But you know, you can add anything you want. I see some people put seafood in it. They put chicken in it. They put crab legs in it. Um, you could really add anything you want to the soup so long as you have the foundation of that squash in the soup. Is there any kind of spice blend or, or, or spice mix that's very important to the soup? So in Haitian cuisine, we have um, a green seasoning called epice. And it is a... Wonderful blend of aromatics of garlic, scallions, onion, lime juice, orange juice, parsley. It really brings together kind of all the flavor bases of of Haitian cooking. Um, And you puree it down and use it to marinate your meats. You use it as a a flavor base for rice or even for certain soups and stews. Uh, That's the one thing that I would say is is really important in being able to kind of capture the essence of the island in the soup is is the marrying of all those aromatics of all those varying um, flavor parts that was not in the original recipe epice is something that over time has developed and become a staple throughout uh Haitian gastronomy but for present day i mean if you're going to make the soup that's one of the things that'll really take it over over the top and give you that authentic flavor um, do you serve anything with it? Are there traditional carbs that go with it on the side, like a bread or a flatbread of some kind? Yeah, I mean, if you're putting pasta in it, you're getting all the carbs you need. But typically, a lot of folks do like to eat their soup with bread. Um, Haitian bread is called grun egg. Um, that literally translates to big guy. <laughs> um, and it is a hard, it's a hard dough bed, uh, bread that is um, very popular uh, to eat for breakfast with coffee. And on the island, if they're going to serve the soup, more than likely they're serving it with bread. Um, but again, you know, you get all the carbs in the world if you're putting in two different types of pasta in your soup. A couple of years ago, back in 2020, Bon Appetit published a recipe from Chef Marcus Samuelson, who isn't Haitian, for what they called soup jumu. It it upset a lot of people. Can can you tell me why and, and what happened after the outcry? Of course. Um, so being that this is one of the most important culinary traditions uh, within Haitian gastronomy, it's it's really important that the soup gets the respect it deserves and that it, if it's going to be put on a mainstream platform or if it's going to be kind of put out there for widespread consumption for folks that are outside of our culture, it's really best practice to make it as close to the tradition as possible in hopes of really being able to tell that story of liberation and, and being able to continue to tell the history, the rich history of Haiti and to kind of shine light on some of the injustices as a result of our of gaining our independence in 1804. And so... 
you know, the, the recipe came out and I remember it was, it was such a big to do um, in the culinary scene, but especially um, online with a lot of the Haitian blogs and a lot of the folks on social media were outraged because it, it's, it wasn't as if it, there were um, varying elements to kind of, you know, it might've had pasta or it might've had chicken versus beef. It, it really kind of shifted up completely from what the original recipe was. And so for, for us, it, it was um, seen as a lack of an opportunity to really be able to connect the dots back to Haiti and to connect the dots back to, the, to sharing a narrative of legacy and of prominence to the island that we haven't been able to really receive. Oftentimes in mainstream media, the first narrative you hear of Haiti is that it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and that there's corruption in government and that the earthquake happened and so many people passed and, and it is truly poor. And, and all these things are true. And, and, and there's a litany of reasons of as to why Haiti has been destabilized to this point. But one thing that we take pride in, it's our food and our cultural traditions and our music and, and our artwork and, and being able to tell those stories is super important and needs to come from Haitians and people of Haitian of, dis, of Haitian descent that can connect to these stories and really drive drive the point home of, of Haiti's importance to the world. That was Chef Farmer and children's book author Sybil St. Aud Tate discussing soup jumu, the official dish of Haitian independence. She and her husband own Honeysuckle Provisions, an Afrocentric grocery, cafe, and food-focused community center in West Philadelphia. To see her recipe for soup jumu, go to our site, kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondorajan, and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. It's been a rainy week here in Los Angeles, and I'm watching the leaves of bulbs I planted two years ago finally peek through the soil, an auspicious start to the new year. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food.